Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will is in Europe. He is actually going to be joining us for the pre-rivalry week pod. He brought his mic to Europe. Dedication, never question it. So we will have him on uh, to discuss a whole lot of storylines for rivalry week, but we will be going solo today. So that means I'm going to do an extended ya or nah. Cake week was very, very eventful, despite the fact that we only had the three SEC on SEC games, but uh, let's dig into it. Okay, Georgia, Tennessee. I thought about what's the nice way to say this for Tennessee fans that's not going to make them want to leave a one-star review or just turn this podcast off immediately. Tennessee fans, you had two things. You had that 75-yard touchdown run. And you had Dolly. That's about it. That's about it. Other than that, that was all Georgia. Total domination. Tennessee fans, I know how you feel. That 75-yard touchdown run to start off the game, first play from scrimmage from Jalen Wright. I remember the Devin Hester opening kickoff return for a touchdown, that Colts Bears Super Bowl as a junior in high school. And that moment is one of the best sports moments of my life, despite the fact that the rest of that day was just horrible. So at least you will always have that and you will remember how you felt in those, I don't know, three, four minutes in which you thought, hey, maybe things are happening. Maybe this is going to be the day. Ohio State fans, a la Ted Ginn, national championship. I think that same year, I want to say, yeah, against against Florida, where Ted Ginn takes the opening kickoff back for a touchdown. And then it's just all Gators the rest of the day. But yeah, my goodness, Georgia overcame that rough Tuesday practice that Kirby was harping on. And boy, did they drop the hammer. They outscored Tennessee 38-3 to after that 75-yard touchdown run. The first team to go 8-0 in SEC play in three consecutive seasons. First team ever. Think about that. I know a lot of people are going to make their jokes about, well, it's the SEC East and you don't have to face Bam every year. You're not facing LSU every year. I, I get all that. That is still so hard to do. It is so, so hard to do. And we talk all the time about these Georgia accomplishments during this three-year run, but that is not something that should just be totally overlooked because going unbeaten in SEC play is just a different beast. And even for Alabama, that's been a different type of beast, albeit in a different division. I understand the SEC West is not the SEC East, but Georgia ties the SEC record with their 28th consecutive win. Go figure. And I didn't realize this coming in. I sh this is the type of thing that I'm usually all over. And for whatever reason, I did not have in my notes ready to go. But they showed it on the CBS broadcast. This was the first win against a ranked team on the road during that 28-game winning streak. Pretty crazy. Think about it. Did not feel like it by day's end. Tennessee had 20 more rushing yards on that first play than it had the rest of the game. Not great. That was not the blueprint that... I kind of mapped out for the balls to be able to make this a true 60-minute game. And the last point that I thought, maybe this could be close. Maybe this could be close, despite the fact that Georgia responded from that opening touchdown that they let up, where it just looked like miscommunication on defense. Maybe you're missing Jamon Dumas-Johnson a little bit. Uh, not the best start. Not the best start for a, a young group that I've praised. But the the last point where I thought, Maybe Tennessee can make this a true football game. 
Third and 12, Georgia deep in their own territory, four minutes left in the first half. It's 17 to seven. So at that point, if you're Tennessee, you're thinking, let's just get the ball back, make this a one score game, go into the locker room. And yeah, Georgia gets the ball out of half. But at the same time, just, just hang around, just hang around, keep that home crowd engaged as much as possible. That did not happen. Back shoulder fade to Swiss Army knife, Dylan Bell. That guy was out of this world good. I mean, Dylan Bell has become one of the most versatile players in the SEC. I don't think he's going to win the Paul Horning Award. I think that's probably going to go to Travis Hunter, even though Travis Hunter is missing games and whatnot. But my goodness, I mean, he caught that pass. He had a nice route on that drag for a touchdown. He had a beautiful, beautiful touchdown pass. A little trick play to Marcus Roseme Jack Saint. He was insanely good. He was so good, especially for a guy who didn't have a touch in the last two weeks. I didn't realize that either. Thinking to myself, Dylan Bell has been involved all year. They've been kind of lining him up in the backfield occasionally. He's been getting the occasional touch. They'd like to be able to utilize him on a screen or two. Nope. Uh, that has really not been the case these last couple of weeks with kind of that, that full arsenal available for Georgia with Lad McConkey back in the fold. Lad McConkey, though, stiffness in his in ankle that, that he said kept him out for this game, basically all of this game. It was, <laughs> I thought, and Georgia fans noticed this too. Gary didn't notice that that lad was out until uh, probably like late in the third quarter. And I know the the default is just to drag Gary because that's what everybody does, including websites like ours. But the the fact that Gary didn't notice it that just speaks to Georgia's weapons. It really does. And I'll, I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. I wasn't fully aware of that. I thought to myself, let's had kind of a quiet first half, but it's not like they were showing him on TV. It's not like we had some Jenny Dell report on the sideline saying, Hey, lad is out with this. They think that they're, they're checking him out for this. It was kind of a quiet exit from what it seemed like. I don't know. Um, hopefully he's going to be all right, but it, it just didn't really matter that, that he was sidelined all game. Robert Thomas went down with a foot injury. Tate Ratlich had a knee injury in this one. Even Bowers got up limping at one point. He went back into the game. Um, but yeah, all those guys just kind of dealing with their various ailments. And Carson Beck says, I don't really care. I don't care. He was unbelievable. So was this offense. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. And George fans, you've been waiting for this. You've been waiting for this. So here it is. Mike Bobo, I'm sorry. I owe Mike Bobo an apology. I have to admit when I'm wrong and watching what this Georgia offense has done the last month. I need to be a man. I need to take some responsibility for my past, for things that I've said on these airwaves, for things that I've said on other airwaves, for things that I've criticized other people for buying into. I need to own that. My frustration with the hire initially was the fact that after Todd Munkin goes to the Ravens, Kirby had, in my opinion, the best opportunity for an offensive-minded assistant in all of college football. The chance to be able to work with the talent that Georgia has, two-time defending champs, a group that just does not flinch. You know the offensive line is going to be rock solid. And to think, well, Kirby just didn't broaden his search. He just went with his best bud an in-house move, and I didn't like that Georgia fans said, well, there's too much talent to fail 
and we shouldn't care about what Mike Bobo did at his previous stops. The thing that I doubted most wasn't the talent. I still said, look, Georgia's going to score a ton of points, okay? that They have plenty of talent. They are going to do that. That's not really what I'm doubting. And I definitely didn't doubt Carson Beck. That wasn't really an issue. He's been even better than I thought he was going to be this year. The player that he has become, man, it's been special. What I doubted, this was the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I pushed back on, was that after one year of working with Todd Munkin, Mike Bobo was this analyst and he was learning these concepts and it was uh, a Saban-esque move to, to have this, this, um, this you know, analyst program, whatever you want to call it. The thing that I doubted was that Mike Bobo was going to adapt those concepts that Munkin made really the identity of this Georgia offense and that he was going to execute those concepts at a level that Georgia needed to, to win a national championship for the third consecutive year. It's as simple as that. Okay. This wasn't me saying, and this is going to sound like I'm backpedaling. I promise you I'm not go back and listen to what I was saying back in January, February, whenever this move was made, this was not a, an indictment on who Georgia was, but that right there was the thing that I was dead wrong about. I'm, I'm admitting to you that the amount of times in a given Saturday, in the last month or so, in which I either talk at Lauren or I just say to myself, God, great design. I say that constantly watching Georgia and watching the concepts that Mike Bobo is dialing up. I say it all the time. I feel like I say it so much when it's a Brock Bowers anticipation route or something like that. But the the feeling that I have watching this Georgia offense is one of total confidence that they're just going to figure it out they, and they'll do it in a variety of ways. They'll, they'll do it even though they they're, they're getting the run game stopped against a really good Tennessee front. And they'll just say, you know, what? we're just going to pick you apart in the air. It doesn't matter that we've got limited pass catchers. We, we trust our scheme. We trust our, our guys to be able to be in the right place at the right time. And they're just going to be able to, to pick you apart. If they didn't show booth shots and show Mike Bobo, fist pumping, celebrating his various dubs that he continues to rack up. I would assume that this is still Todd Munkin up there running that offense. I truly would. I, I really would. I I love the anticipation routes. And it's well beyond just the back shoulder fades, which that used to feel like the only sort of anticipation route that Georgia would run in the pre-Munkin era. Georgia fans, be honest, how many times Jake Fromm, back shoulder fade, Jake Fromm, back shoulder fade. Oh, it's third and eight. Only thing that we can draw up downfield that we really trust, back shoulder fade. I, I love that this offense just, it sends guys all over the formation. You never know who's going to be and where they're going to be. It, it is just a mismatch waiting to happen. The comfortability that Brock Bowers has developed against zone coverage. And there are people smarter than me that can probably do, give you an even more in-depth breakdown. I thought if there was one thing where he sort of looked human as a true freshman, it was in spots like that and his savviness to be able to find that soft spot in the zone, to be always looking for the football and never really caught off guard. To me, that is just tremendous. I love that Bobo figured out how freaking good Carson Beck is throwing over the middle downfield. And they started attacking that area so much more after the first month. I felt maybe it was the Auburn game that turned that around, but it felt like in the first part of the season, they were trying to just get out on the edges and trust that the Georgia wide receivers block really well. And hopefully you just get a free, you know, seven, eight yards. And a lot of those plays wouldn't really go anywhere. 
And they have kind of gotten away from that. At least that's what it seems like to me. And I'm sure SEC StatCat and others have stat breakdowns to probably show more evidence of that. At least it feels like it. But I love that Carson Beck is now so comfortable in what Mike Bobo is asking him to do that he never really feels flustered. And going through his progressions, man, it is, it's awesome. This guy didn't get sacked again. Seventh time in 11 games that he has not been sacked. And he was definitely hit. And he was roughed up a little bit by that Tennessee front. But he is just getting rid of the football so quickly. His mental clock, that that need to step up in the pocket, to trust a route, whatever it is, he, he just is doing it for you. Even that, that little play where he kind of rolls out and he's rolling to his left and he hits a guy. I can't remember who it was that he hit. When it was that? Was that Edwards that he might have hit? Coming back over, but a play where it's like he he squares his shoulders, and that looks like that looks like such an easy throw because it's a five yard throw. But if he's off at all, that's not a walking touchdown. Instead, it's a walking touchdown. Just I I, I continue to be impressed. I, I really do. Even on the road against a Tennessee defense that I respect, Carson Beck looked like he had total faith in that scheme in ways that we would see with Stetson Bennett and Todd Bunkin. I did not think it was possible for Carson Beck and Mike Bobo to look like the second coming of Stetson Bennett and Todd Bunkin. I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm telling you right now, I was wrong. They are that good. I officially feel horrible about saying Georgia would either need to win a national championship or finish as a top seven offense for me to um, lose the, the Bobo bet with the audience. Remember, we're going to have a Bobo fact after – at the end of every single pod, if I'm, if Georgia hits either one of those things, Georgia top seven offense, top seven scoring offense, or they win a national championship. And even as recently as this past week, I was saying to somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, who was kind of chirping at me for the Bobo stuff, which look, I get a couple times a week. And I was saying on this show last week, stop chirping at me, stop chirping at me. Um, and the point that I was trying to drive home was look at the court, the coordinators that have had total lots on me on their side of the ball who have won a national championship in the playoff era. And do you really think that Bobo fits in that group? I now think he's starting to look like a guy who's going to fit in that group. I really do. I really do. And I, look, I'm, I'm admitting all of this to you. I'm admitting all of this to you, despite the fact that I had Georgia going 14-0 to get to a national championship and leading at halftime of that game and Ohio State coming back and, and Georgia looking like a team that, that doesn't have enough offensive creativity to be able to... Uh, to be able to put scoring drives together in the second half of that game. So that can still happen and I'll still feel wrong. Okay. That, that, that is what I am telling you. I am saying on this date, November 19th, 2023, after 11 games of watching this Georgia football team that I was wrong about Mike Bobo and he has shut me up. He has shut up skeptics and there will be no more from me. Little offhand remarks about Bobo. I'm not going to do the thing where if Georgia gets off to a slow start and it's, you know, they're sitting there with seven points in the middle of the second quarter. I'm not going to tweet, hey, Mike Bobo stands where you at. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. He has earned that right. He has earned some grace from me. And um, look, he has made me want to praise Georgia for making this team so difficult to defend. I thought this four-game stretch would define Mike Bobo and Carson Beck, and I believe it has. I really do. Four games, three against ranked opponents, including this one. Georgia's averaged 41 points. And they haven't averaged 41 points in the way that I thought they did at times in 2021. 
where they're just getting short fields or you kind of look at the defensive touchdowns and, oh, they had a pick six here. They had a scoop and score there. Zalvin's doing all the heavy lifting. It, it really is. And that's not to say credit away from the Georgia defense, which, by the way, did not allow a touchdown after that opening drive. And I don't know why in the world you would want to test the secondary because the way those guys are playing right now, forget about it. But this offense, Carson Beck in that stretch, that four-game stretch, Nine touchdown passes. He averaged 10.2 yards per attempt with just one turnover on 115 pass attempts. It's championship stuff. That is. He probably, based on the way that it's looking right now, do I think Carson Beck will get to New York? If I had to guess, I'd say no. I still think that he's going to be considered behind those top three of Jaden Daniels, Bo Nix, Michael Pankis Jr., it's not out of the realm of possibility in the way that I forecasted earlier in the year. And it's because of what he's done in these four games. I didn't think when you were looking at the mid, the midway point numbers that it really reflected a guy who was en route to New York, but uh, whether he gets there or not, look, it, it shouldn't be a slap in the face if he doesn't, because you can win a national title with Carson Beck. You could win a national title with Mike Bobo as your offensive coordinator, your primary play caller. And if there was one question that Georgia wanted to have answered in the regular season, that was it. That was it. And, and they have answered that in such a definitive way with the way that they have come into form down the stretch. So Georgia will now, going into that Georgia Tech game, be in uh, let's stay healthy mode or let's get healthy mode. Um as deep as they are, obviously, you want to be able to have McConkey, You want Rara. You want Ratledge to be healthy. Uh, Kirby didn't seem too current, concerned about those guys. Take that for what it is. I'm not saying that Kirby is the end-all, be-all when it comes to injury reports. What's clear is that Kirby has Josh Heupel's number until further notice. Balls had 17 points in year one of that matchup. Heupel, Kirby, had 13 points in year two. Seven points was can be a... Uh, they had that late touchdown with, what, four minutes left in that game in Athens last year. I know, the rain, the rain, the rain. Ten points in year three. Going the wrong way. Going the wrong way. I thought we'd see Tennessee run the football a little bit better. Injuries on the offensive line didn't help. Okay, they, They're not at full strength up front, not making excuses for them. I don't know that they would have been able to totally flip the script on that if they had been healthy. But, man, combine that with the fact that they, they have a, a depleted group of pass catchers that was a game where they really, really wished they probably had Brew McCoy on the outside. You, you needed some of those grown man. I'm going to make a guy miss in space. I'm going to fire up the crowd with a 12 yard gain that moves the chains. I'm going to make a block on the outside. That's freeze up squirrel white. I don't think you want squirrel white blocking on the perimeter. That's not what he does. We saw some plays. I can't remember who it was that blew it up. I think it was Tyke Smith who blew up a play that, that squirrel white is trying to block on the outside. And you're like, this, this is a mismatch. <laughs> this is why you can't do that stuff against Georgia. Why, why teams don't necessarily go horizontal on them and just methodically drive down the field. And unfortunately for Tennessee, that is what this offense has become. Try to take some deep shots. They had a couple of those opportunities. Balls were overthrown. Quick stuff to the outside. is just when that's not going to be there either. Um, it's, it's tough going. It's really, really tough going. This is an offense for Tennessee that if it's off schedule at all, you can kind of forget about it. 
I, and I think Josh Heupel has gotten to that point too, with some of the, some of the play calls that they had, it was interesting seeing them actually try and throw the ball in some of these third and shorts. I looked at this a few weeks ago, there were not enough opportunities for Tennessee or for Joe Milton rather to qualify for, I think he had less than five pass attempts on third and three or less as of a couple of weeks ago. Now I haven't looked up that number again, but that shows you one, the faith that Tennessee has in its ground game, because if you're running for what, six yards to carry, why would you throw the ball on third and three and two, probably the lack of faith that they have in that passing game in those money spots when they need to be able to move the chains. Um, I think at this point, loss number four, Tennessee fans, you're looking forward to turning the page to Nico. The Joe Milton intrigue, it came and went. It is what it is. He's not a bad player. He's not a bad player. And I will, if anybody ever wants to criticize the attitude of Joe Milton, I will defend that guy because I have loved what we've seen from him. We can, I can do a whole diatribe about guys who transfer, guys who stick around, but I think he's had the right attitude from the jump. I love the relationship he had with Hendon Hooker. I love the relationship that he's had with Nico. The fact that you can see him talking him up on the sideline, the fact that he is his biggest supporter. And if Nico is playing down the stretch here at all, uh, he is going to probably continue to be the biggest supporter. It'll be interesting to see kind of how Hypo approaches this, knowing the fact that he'd like to be able to get Joe Milton on an NFL roster. Some people probably just heard that and laughed, but you see the tools and you've seen the way that the NFL evaluates these things. Um, Joe Milton getting benched probably wouldn't be the best for his NFL draft stock. There's probably a way that Josh Heupel can go about it. That allows Tennessee to turn the page a little bit, get the bad taste out of their mouths with this offense and move on to what it's going to look like in the future with Nico as the quarterback of the future. I expect to see him in the second half of Vandy. That's kind of how I think Heupel is going to approach this. Remember, Playing in bowl games doesn't count against redshirts. So Nico has played three games right now. He can play that fourth game against Vandy and then play a fifth game in the bowl game. And that's not going to count against his eligibility. Make of that what you will. Probably look a little bit too far into that sometimes. I kind of think if these guys pop as a two-year starter and they have those, those measurables, they're going to the NFL anyways. I don't know how much eligibility matters in that case. But that's the good news for Tennessee. That's the good news. On the bright side, probably still going to make a Florida Bowl game. Maybe come down here in my neck of the woods. A little Citrus Bowl action. Orlando, this time of year. Josh Heupel knows. It's lovely. Joe Milton knows. It's lovely. Could be worse, okay? It feels frustrating because the margin of victory is there. You look at this season now for Tennessee, and you're like, crap, man. Lost to Florida. Lost to Bama. Lost to Georgia. Lost all of them by double digits. Had an opportunity against Bama. But that's that's Pruitt-era stuff. That's late Butch stuff to lose three games like that to your rivals. That is the not the place that Tennessee thought and hoped it would be in year three. And look, if you're getting to that ninth win in a Florida Bowl game, you're finishing as a top 25 team, you make some moves in the portal, um, you, you're going to feel all right about this team heading into next year. So it's not to say that that's going to fall off kind of TBD on what happens with Tim Banks, something that Matt Hayes talked about on this podcast. Maybe he's going to get 
a, a, a chance to lead his own program. You'll kind of have to shuffle the deck a little bit on defense. TBD on that. They had a lot of experience on that side of the ball this year. You're going to have to rework some things there. But I don't think that this is a sign that the sky is falling, despite the fact that eight and four, assuming that Tennessee gets there with a win against Vandy next week, it's going to feel hollow. It just is. Not all eight and four seasons are created equally. They're just not. This eight and four season for Tennessee will feel frustrating. But the reminder, staying on top is so friggin' hard to do. So hard to do. And uh, this game showed that Georgia has made it look easy. It's made it look as easy as anyone has since Alabama's, uh, what, early 2010s run? It's probably what we're talking about here. All right, Florida, Mizzou. This game was awesome. Absolutely awesome. It was bananas in the second half. The thicker kicker does it again. Gives Mizzou the dramatic come from behind win. Mizzou gets win number nine. It did not come easy. This game went every which way. I think it was what, like eight lead changes? Six lead changes in the second half of this one? That even the fact that this game looked like it was over, Florida in completion with what five seconds left on the clock, and then everybody's already on the field. Katie George is doing her post-game interview with Drink, and then she gets told in her earpiece, Oh, they're putting one second left back on the clock, and they have to get everybody out. Like, can you imagine? I was thinking to myself, if Florida pulled off this miraculous play, which they tried to do, um, little hook and ladder. If they had pulled off that play, it would have gone down as one of the top, top five most ridiculous plays you've ever seen in college football history. That did not happen, though. Uh, but this game was just everything and more in the second half, especially. Unfortunately, Florida watched Graham Mertz go down, collarbone injury. Uh, if you missed the play, he was I, – I was – thinking to myself, man, I'm going to have to do another apology to Graham Mertz after what he was doing down the stretch and to have a third and five where Florida's down two late in the third. If they don't pick this up, they're going to punt it back to Mizzou. And that's kind of danger territory for the way that they like to be able, able to operate on offense. And Mertz just plows through a pair of Mizzou defenders and successfully moves the chains, picks up the first down and then stays in the game on the very next play. I would love to see what his adrenaline levels were like after that play. But then he he's pointing to the sideline. He's like, my collarbone's messed up. And he was right. Naper said afterwards that it is a fracture in his collarbone. Not great. Hate to see it for a guy that I think has been definitely better than what the skeptics thought he was going to be, myself included. And there were, I think, moments throughout this season in which you felt like, okay, I can see this, this offensive identity. I can see it working and maybe with a better offensive line, better protection, this, this thing could really take off and get going a little bit. But instead Florida was in a spot where all of a sudden you're like, okay, so Max Brown's going to step in. Um, That actually ended up not being, not being the worst thing in the world. Now they, they did have the miscommunication. It looked like with the fumble on the exchange and you're kind of reminded, yes, yeah, a retro freshman, this guy with seven career pass attempts. He's being asked to come back and beat a top 10 team on the road. Not an ideal spot to be put in, not an ideal spot, but we did see what a dual threat could do in this offense, which <laughs> for the Florida fans saying that and you're watching this and you're watching Max Brown break off chunks of yardage, you're thinking to yourself, Oh yeah, wait a minute. We had Anthony Richardson last year. We did. 
Okay. Yeah. He had the, the, the play though, where right after that fumble happens and Florida looked like it was driving. It's 23, 21. Maybe they're going to take the lead. And instead, boom, two plays later, Theo East takes it to the house, Florida down nine. You're thinking it's, it's absolutely over. And Will was texting me after he got off his flight in Europe. And he's saying, nope, this is not surprised at all to see this, to see Florida falling apart. I'm like, if you haven't watched this game, <laughs> I, I I don't think you know how you should feel about it because for in Mizzou fans, you could admit this too, probably you probably felt like Florida was going to win that game for the last six minutes or so. They marched right down the field and scored after it was a two score game. And then they get a stop and then Florida marches down the field again and kicks a go ahead field goal in the final two minutes. The problem was in typical Florida fashion, they find a way to hurt themselves with just some sort of mental lapse. And Trevor Etienne went out of bounds on third down. He didn't force Mizzou to use one of those timeouts. So Mizzou had a shot with one timeout in the back pocket. And uh, yeah, of course, Florida defense didn't get a stop. Imagine that. Even when it was fourth and 17, Florida fans probably felt like, yep, Mizzou's probably going to convert this. Luther Burden steps up in that spot. Mizzou did that with 31 seconds left. You know what the play clock is. It's 40 seconds. Florida probably wished I had that time back with that timeout. And I get it. ETN was brilliant. He was awesome. I love that guy. I'm saying to myself watching that game, why can't Billy make him what Cody Schrader is? And I get it. Like different running style, whatever. Guys are, those guys are nine pounds different. At least that's what it says in their bio. 214, 205, a couple of five nine guys, five eight, depending who you ask. I just would love to see it. I would love to see more Trevor ETN. And I'm not trying to take away from Montreal Johnson, but I would just love to see those 30 touch games from him because I think he's that special. And Florida was in that game because of how good he was. But it's stuff like that, a mental mistake in a critical moment that once again just cost Florida. And this is this is what they do. This has been their MO. And the irony was Mizzou fans that entire fourth quarter have to be thinking this would be such a Mizzou loss. This would be the ultimate, this is why we can't have nice things moment to lose a game like this to a Florida team on a backup quarterback at the end of that game. Their offensive line is, you know, ripped to shreds. And of course, off the biggest win we've had in a decade, we're going to lay an egg like this. We're going to miss out on a New Year's Six Bowl opportunity. Our defense can't get a stop. They're gassed. They're injured. Man, that didn't happen, though. That didn't happen. And you, you have to tip your cap to these superstars from Mizzou. That's what they are. Luther Burden, Cody Schrader, they made sure of it. 306 scrimmage yards for those two guys. Luther Burden stepping up on fourth and 17, man. His his career so far at Mizzou, outside of the awkward start with the deleting the stuff off Instagram after the lack of touches early on, man, ever since then, what a joy. What a joy. Even if he doesn't play another game at Mizzou, I will I will say that guy lived up to the hype and then some. Because the amount of big-time plays that he has made for that program and, and the pride he takes in doing just that for his home state, he and Cody Schrader and Brady Cook, all these homegrown guys, it's fun to see. It really is. And I think Mizzou fans have developed a new appreciation watching that play out. But I, I am, uh, I'm happy for Mizzou fans that they closed their home slate 
that way and not the Mizzou way of puking on their own shoes. They will be playing in a New Year's Six Bowl if they beat Arkansas. There is a chance. I'd say a decent chance. I don't know. I'd say there's at least a chance that Louisville is going to move into that number nine spot after they beat Miami on the road. And because it was a pretty surprisingly chalky Saturday, we're still waiting on that chaotic Saturday to sort of happen. And that really has not yet because those undefeated teams continue to win in Florida State. Losing Jordan Travis is something that I'm going to dip into in a little bit here. Um, that was the most chaos that we saw kind of all day at the top. Um, so Mizzou could be at number 10 for those Tuesday playoff rankings. It's all about getting that top 11 spot. Top group of five team is going to be able to, to get that that final New Year's Six Bowl slot. So you want to make sure that you're in that, that top 11. But as long as they beat Arkansas, I think they should be fine. I do. I think that should be the case. Um, and that's the good news for Mizzou. You were just in survive in advanced mode. You got the the style points that you needed against Tennessee. This wasn't about covering a spread. It was just finding a way to not lose to Florida. A Florida team that hasn't given up. Has not given up. As for Florida, the Toby Keith game was sitting right there for Billy. It was right there. That would have been such a gritty, blue-collar, how do you like me now game to clinch bowl eligibility? Florida was down, what, three offensive linemen by the end of this? Backup quarterback in there? I know I've said that about four different times, but you got a backup quarterback in there trying to pull off a comeback. And all, all Florida has to do to win that game is either get out of bounds on that third down run or just get a stop on fourth and 17 with an offense that looked like it was kind of sputtering at that point. By the way, Mizzou... Uh, if we're being honest, might have gotten away with a little OPI. I think it was Weiss who was serving as a shield of sorts for Burden. I'm not sure if they ran the same route on that play, but did anybody else notice that? Where those guys only had about two yards of separation. I'm like, I don't know that that was totally by the book, the way that it was drawn up. But whatever, Florida, you still have to be able to make a stop in that in that moment. And, and they couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Billy could have shut up so many people like me who say that he is out of his mind if he doesn't get an offensive play caller. Billy could have gone into that Florida game with, or that Florida State game rather, with nothing to lose. You would have felt so much better about the direction of your program after you've had to deal with a handful of decommits on the recruiting trail and people are wondering what's this class going to shape out to look like. Florida just finds a way to squander those opportunities. This defense... I thought contained Brady Cook with his legs. And this was by far a totally different story than watching what Jaden Daniels did, getting every blade of grass that he wanted to in that game last week. That was not the case with Brady Cook. Brady Cook's not the same runner as Jaden Daniels, but you get what I'm saying. But man, some of the angles that this defense takes is it's bad. It's so bad. That Theo Weiss touchdown, go back and watch the replay from the from the, like the offensive side of it. And I, I watched that in real time going, how are they, how is on the short side of the field, Florida not able to get a defender over there to push him out of bounds. And I get it. It's a little bit of misdirection or whatever, but to me, that that was a total breakdown. And you just can't have that. You can't with all due respect to Theo Weiss. He's not Luther Burden. Okay. This isn't Luther Burden breaking ankles in space and you're just tipping your cap to a guy that was the number one receiver in his class. This wasn't that. Okay. I, I'm kind of running out of words for the Florida defense. 
it can't just be, oh, we lose a linebacker here, we lose a linebacker there, and now we're just done. It's It's got to be more than that. And I liked the idea of the Austin Armstrong hire. I, I thought Billy showed some creativity and not worrying about age or anything like that. I'm not saying that age is the reason that he's not succeeding or that this defense isn't succeeding because Lord knows we've seen defensive coordinators young and old in that spot struggle. That that has been the MO for Florida and that defense in the 2020s. They have struggled. They really have. I don't know how you run it back with Austin Armstrong after how bad this finish looks. Florida fans can't even feel like they'll stop a Florida state backup making his first career road start because that group just has zero urgency and there's nobody that can stop the bleeding. I, I just don't see that. Cam Jackson had a moment in that game and look, he's, he's a great player, but where, where's that guy? Where's that guy in this Florida defense that's going to step up and say, I'm going to make a play. They just don't have it. I remember talking, one of the things I remember talking to cash about cash Daniel a few years ago, the difference between Kentucky's 2018 team and Kentucky's 2019 team. He's like, be honest with you. And this hurts to say, but like, we didn't have that alpha on the 2019 defense. And you look at what Josh Allen was 2018 and not having him on that 2019 defense, like cash was saying like, yeah, like I was kind of the voice at times, but Josh was the guy that was going to go out there and get a stop and get us right. And Florida doesn't have that guy. You can have rah, rah guys. That's fine. But unless you have that guy that can step up in that big time spot and just give you exactly what you need, you just you're just going to be in, in, put in tough spots week after week, and that's what we've seen from Florida in the latter half of this schedule. I still think Billy's fine, even if he loses to Florida State. As bad as it would be to lose five in a row to miss out on bowl eligibility after South Carolina felt like a turn the corner day for the Napier era, as bad as all of that would be, I think he's going to be okay and he's going to get a year three. If I had to guess. Now, if we hear Scott Strickland's getting fired, all bets are off. That's a different story altogether. Hopefully I don't get cold taked on that. But man, I just, I, I continue to feel like Billy has these games that he's going to want back. He's going to look back Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's 20 years from now. And he's going to say, man, one, one execution error here, one execution error there, and we're in a different spot. And that might sound like hopium. It kind of is. But the, the lack of discipline late in games that we've seen from Florida year one, year two of the Billy Napier era, it's giving me some Scott Frost vibes. Okay. I know Florida fans don't want to hear that. That's not a comp that you want to be that you want to be said about your team, but it feels like a team that instead of finding ways to win, it just finds ways to lose. That is cliche as the day is long, but tell me that's not the case for this team because that was a winnable game, a winnable game, even amidst wild circumstances that you didn't foresee happening and you still just couldn't get it done. And the bright side for Florida, I guess, Saw that Lagway was trending on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. So Florida fans already picturing what this offense could look like in the future. I don't know. That's what you got to sell yourself on. I guess you do it at this point. Uh, not a whole lot of other hopium outside of that. And, you know, we'll kind of wait and see what remains of this 2024 class. I think they will still be just fine, but still uh, a crushing, crushing way for 
for the SEC slate to end for Florida. And now you're going to have to go before state to go make a bowl game. Simple as that. Okay. Kentucky, South Carolina, no sunglasses for Shane Beamer. At least not that I saw. Maybe I missed something, but great post-game video from Justin King, who is the best in the business at multimedia college football content. Beamer, if you didn't see the video, he opens the drawer in his office, standing desk guy, by the way, now, and turn my swag on comes, it, it, it comes on as, as he's opening this drawer and Beamer goes, nah, and closes it. Subtle, effective though. You get it. You don't bet against South Carolina at home in November. You don't. Six and one in those spots in the Beamer era after holding off Kentucky. More importantly, obviously, this sets up a bowler bus game against Clemson next week. Williams Bryce at night. Spoiler alert, I'm picking South Carolina. I'm, I will be picking South Carolina to, to cover that one. Just too much juice at Williams Bryce. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Those fans look. That, that kind of thin out a little bit earlier than expected or was I, or was I seeing things? It felt like that one kind of thinned out. I don't know. Um, but whatever, it, it still looked like a great atmosphere. The sandstorm guy was in the house. That guy got a whole lot of airtime. I'm going to say that is the most airtime for a standalone soul patch enthusiast that I've seen on live TV in 20 years. Don't fact check me on that one. I'm just going to say that that's going to be the, that that was the case. Shout out to him. Pat on the back to South Carolina for keeping that Kentucky offense in check. A group that has been, I think, for the most part, disastrous against the pass. That is where South Carolina has been awful this year. They could have been gashed on the back end, I thought, and they really weren't. They didn't have those, those big coverage busts that led to Kentucky, who has struggled to move the ball consistently and string scoring drives together, who seems like they just need a big play all the time to be able to make things go. They didn't allow that. Another game in which those Kentucky receivers felt like a letdown. It's just, it's always something. It's always something. It's always drops, it's fumbles, it's penalties. It's, it's whatever it, it is. It, it has become the norm and an area that you thought was going to be a strength of this team has turned into a liability. And that, that is, that's reality. It just is. Kentucky receivers, AM offensive line, Arkansas offensive line, just because of the Sam Pittman factor. And I would probably put the Tennessee receivers in that category, although eh, McCoy is healthy. Maybe that's a little bit different, but those feel like maybe the four most disappointing units in the SEC. You could probably just say the entire LSU defense, though. I think if you were looking at this practically, you saw some of the, the cracks in the foundation with what they were trying to do this year. But still, nonetheless, uh, and when it's not the Kentucky receivers, it's Devin Leary overthrowing a guy. One of the things I was talking at with Lauren was, <laughs> I said, God, every single time he drops back and it's a deep ball and it's more than 20 yards downfield, I just assume it's going three yards over that receiver's outstretched arms. Every time. It, there's just, and, and then he'll, he'll have like a throw. He had one throw over the middle where he just ripped it to Dane Key. And I, don't, I think it was like third and 13 or something like that. And Jordan made note of it on the broadcast of, God, that's that right there is why this is so frustrating. Because you see a guy that can still do all of those things. If he couldn't make that throw, if he couldn't make some of these throws into tight windows, you'd say, all right, he's just not right. This just isn't working. But then you see him make those high degree of difficulty thing throws like that. And you're like, okay, so 
then why aren't these other things happening for this Kentucky offense? Why does it always look like it is so difficult? And the inconsistency for Kentucky fans, I know, has just been maddening. Even Ray Davis, the steadying force, his effectiveness and his usage have been inconsistent in the latter half of the season. He's frustrated. Said after the game, I can't remember. I think it might have been my guy, Nick Roush at KSR, who was saying, you know, I thought I was the bell cow. He's right. Unless there's something there that that we haven't been made aware of, or if there's some sort of injury that he's working through. I mean, he's still out there, but he's getting rotated in with Ramon Jefferson and, and they're trying to make it work with some of these other backs. I, I don't know. Like he still looks plenty effective to me when he's out there, when he hit that spin for six, like, all right, that, that was, that was first half of the season, Ray Davis. That's that dude that was waltzing towards an all sec season. But instead it was just kind of more frustration. Larry had two turnovers including the one with two minutes left where he didn't sense that backside pressure. The ball goes right into the arms of Tonka Hemingway, who unofficially owns Kentucky. That guy's been awesome in the last two matchups against Kentucky. Great response by South Carolina's defense. It really was. The Nick Eamon worry pick in the end zone, unreal play in that spot. I, I thought that group, I they really could have laid an egg after finally looking the part last week against Vandy. Didn't look very good a couple weeks ago against Jacksonville State. We'll just chalk that up to Rich Rod being brilliant. But, man, that uh, that group could have been gashed, I thought, at some key moments, and instead they weren't. And on the Kentucky side of this, no other way to say it, but this has been a wildly disappointing season. You went out and you made big transfer portal splashes with Leary and Davis, and you get a couple of starters on that offensive line. You have your homegrown receivers you get Liam Cohen back and you do all these things to where let's, I, Kentucky is kind of buying an offense, right? That That is what Mark Stoops has set out to do. He has made it a point to say, that is where we're going to spend our money. That is where we're going to use our resources to go out and try and buy an offense. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I, I think he's smart to do that. I think if you can do that in this day and age, crap, why wouldn't you? No offense to Kaya Sharon, but I'm going out and I'm giving getting I'm getting me a Devin Leary if I had the opportunity to do so every single time. And man, outside of Ray Davis going off against Florida, how many times did Kentucky fans really feel good this season? It feels like a repeat of last year. Kentucky's best wins are against teams that are still trying to clinch bowl eligibility. Florida and Mississippi State. Mm. got waxed by Bama, you got waxed by Mizzou, you lost at home to Tennessee, you lose a game like this that was very winnable against a flawed South Carolina team. Uh, it's weird because I remember in the preseason, one of the million columns that I was writing about, I think I was this was maybe a July story or something, but I was writing about teams in the SEC who were destined to improve and teams that were destined to regress. And I thought Tennessee was probably the most likely team in the East, at least, to regress just because best season in 19 years, all the pieces to replace on offense. I've talked ad nauseum about that. But I thought that Kentucky, at first, was the most likely team to improve. And that was after winning seven games. I'm like, all right, well, 
gosh, I mean, they should have a seven win floor in the regular season, eight wins in a bowl game, something like you would think at the very least. And unless they beat a one loss Louisville team on the road, who looks significantly different under Jeff Brom, it's going to be a six and six Kentucky team. For a team that some were picking as the second best team in the East coming into this year, that's a bummer, man. That is a massive, massive bummer. And I don't think you can sit here and and blame injuries. I don't think you can blame Rich Scangarello like you could last year because obviously that experiment was failed and you saw the, the flaws in it. But I don't really think Kentucky is anybody to blame for this year but themselves. I don't. And, and that is a tough pill for Mark Stoops to swallow because it doesn't often feel like we are saying, well, Kentucky lacks discipline or Kentucky didn't maximize its potential. That has not been the norm for this program. And for this team, I think it's a very fair criticism. South Carolina, on the other hand, uh, they would have a wildly different perspective if they could get to six and six. The six win obviously would be another win against Clemson doing that two years in a row would be a promising sign, even though this is a Clemson team that is not the level that it was at in the 2010s, but it would be quite the feat for a team that I think has been decimated with injuries and not really helped by scheme on defense. And they've been better these last two weeks, but Spencer rather staying upright and being that steadying force. He and Xavier really get how fitting that they score both of the touchdowns for South Carolina in this game. Uh, that look, that's, that's the best thing they've had going all year. It doesn't matter that they are very desperate at running back too. They had two scholarship running backs in this game. You had Lenore Sellers playing some wildcat a little bit. Dave really in the backfield. I think he had a carry from minus 17 yards in which he just kept trying to run backwards. Not ideal. Not what you want. Also probably a bit to be expected when you have, a guy like that trying to get some carries in that spot. But uh, Mario Anderson was pretty ineffective in this one. Credit Deion Walker, man. That guy, uh, I, I was wondering who was going to be the closest resemblance to Jalen Carter this year. And it hasn't been Mason Smith, as I forecasted in the preseason. I think Deion Walker's got the best case to kind of be that guy, despite the fact that this was – in a losing effort, but he's just everywhere. That guy's just blowing up plays constantly. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the South Carolina offense finds a way, finds a way. And that is what Beamer has done so well is say, we have flaws. We have a lot of flaws, but we're going to win games that look, maybe we're, you know, we're an underdog in. This was what the, the eighth time I believe that Shane Beamer has won outright as an underdog. In, at South Carolina, that, that's pretty impressive. That's kind of what they need. And what they'll need to be able to beat Clemson is an unbelievable atmosphere, which I think they will get. But they will also need maybe a little bit of Juice Wells. I'm going to keep throwing it out there. God, I hope he plays. I really do. And some of the comments, if you saw, I think there was something about like his dad commenting to somebody on Facebook or Instagram, something like that. But uh, I would love to be able to see Juice Wells out there. Who knows? Maybe that's just the ace in the hole for this South Carolina team. But look, when you start two and six, this, this is what you hope for. This this is it. To to be able to climb back in here, albeit against some favorable competition. But man, I, uh, I, I tip my cap to them because they could have thrown in the towel. And they have not done that at this point this season. 
I think they're still getting after on, on that defensive line. And they, they trust in the offense too. At, at the very least, even if South Carolina doesn't win next week, and in the very likely event that Spencer Rattler is off to the NFL, because goodness gracious, why wouldn't he after the year that he's had and the strides that he has made at the quarterback position, you should still feel good about the offensive direction. I know that, that getting sellers, some of those looks, um, I, I think would be, that, that's going to continue to make South Carolina fans feel optimistic about the direction of this program. But they have set themselves up with a bowl or bust game against Clemson. Cannot wait for that. Okay. Yarna. Oh boy. Um, Yarna. Auburn will get destroyed in the Iron Bowl after laying an egg against New Mexico State. I'm going to say nah. Reluctantly. That's got to be the worst performance by an SEC team this year. Right? Has to be. Just has to be. How how in the world does the Auburn team who came out and was in total control against Arkansas from start to finish, how does that team, without some drastic change, come out and have the performance that it did against New Mexico State? And if you say, oh, this was just a sleeper opportunity and they were just looking ahead to the Iron Bowl, they got their butts whipped, man. Go look at that that final box score. New Mexico State had like double the total yards. What? Jerry Kill led New Mexico State, who apparently just has Hugh Freeze's number. That's what he does. But totally disappointing. And, and I get it. You've already clinched ball eligibility. Yes, I'm an idiot for saying that Auburn could have celebrated a bowl berth because this one was an automatic win. Hand up. Was wrong about that. I apologize for Mike Bobo. I'll apologize to Auburn fans for saying this one was already in the win column for assuming that they were going to be riding a win streak going into the Iron Bowl. Ugh, man, that was so unbelievably bad. You like every time, and I'll be honest. Like I'm, I'm dialed into Georgia and Tennessee, but every time I'm 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 watching that game, it is New Mexico has the football or New Mexico State, rather. Can't get those those programs twisted. Lobos and Aggies, they don't take too kindly to that. Anytime I was watching that game, it was, oh, New Mexico State moves the chains and picks up another first down. You're like, when is, when is Auburn going to have the, the ball? They're down 10. This, 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 sooner or later, they're going to have to do the whole scoring points thing. And what a disastrous effort in the trenches. I mean, so unbelievably bad. And unprepared tough look for Hugh Freeze really really tough look man um I thought Auburn had a chance to be the ultimate good vibes team in college football heading into the offseason okay and I mean that because if they had won that game like they were supposed to wherein they were what three touchdown favorites and they get it wasn't just oh a a better than it gets credit for New Mexico state team showed up and beat them by three points. They whooped them. Okay. If if Auburn had shown up, had just shown up, won that game and played a competitive iron bowl and then won a bowl game. I think that's on the table. I think ultimate good, good vibes team could have been there for them. And instead you're just back to questioning this offense. You're back to wondering why this team lacks consistency and just when you feel like they've maybe turned the corner um i don't really think that you can say that but in the iron bowl does this mean that auburn is just going to turtle and 
Alabama is going to dominate from start to finish, I would say that's not a guarantee at all. I just wouldn't. I, w- I would not assume that to be the case. And who knows? Maybe maybe those all the good plays are being saved for Alabama when they thought they were just going to be able to show up, run the football at will, like they pretty much had the last few weeks, and that was not the case at all. Yeah or not, Jaden Daniels is, as Brian Kelly said afterwards, the best player he's ever coached. That is... Hmm. You'd have to go back and, and really dig into the archives here, but what he coached Travis Kelsey, right? Coached Manti Teo. Coached the 2022 version of Harold Perkins that was actually playing in his rifle position. Um, yeah. I'm having a hard time disagreeing with that. <laughs> he had eight touchdowns in that game. I, I I went into that and I Will and I were talking about this. I said if if he gets five or six, that would be sort of keeping pace and a sign that look, they want to get him the Heisman trophy. And I, I have no problem with it, by the way. I have no problem leaving him in for an extra couple of possessions, trying to keep him in spots where he's able to throw the football and, and do those things because what like for being honest, that's something to play for. I get it. It's an individual award and it's not the end all be all. And some people can say that, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Individual accolades, blah, blah, blah. I, the Heisman matters. Okay. It just does. It matters for a head coach. And there's a reason why Brian Kelly has been advocating for Jane Daniels to win this award, which I think he has punched his ticket to New York at this point. I I, I do very much believe that he is going to New York and my pre-Alabama take that Jaden Daniels could not be in a position where he would lose that game and still have a chance to win the Heisman. That, that, is, that take is cold as ice, okay? Because he is now in a spot where he is four touchdowns away from having 50 pre-Heisman ceremony touchdowns. I went back and looked up the amount of Power 5 players who have hit 50 pre-Heisman touchdowns. Nobody's done it since Burrow and I, I guess Jalen Hurts 2019, Justin Fields 2019. So those three guys did it in 2019, but 11 guys at the power five level have had 50 pre Heisman touchdowns. Jane's going to do it. He's going to get four against Texas A&M and he's going to do it without a conference championship. And that is so impressive. Look, go, go look at his game log. Cody Warsham tweeted this out, and it's it's a very basic, hey, Jaden Daniels has been awesome this year tweet. But even seeing it in perspective and you're seeing those numbers over and over, you're like, wait a minute, he's had at least 350 yards or four touchdowns in, what, every game this year? Is that, what? How, what? He's incredible. And I know it's Georgia State. They are basura against the pass. They really are. And I'm not a Sean Elliott disrespecter, but... Man, uh, it's special. It's special to watch what he's doing. And if this game against Texas A&M, if it is his last college game, which I hope it's not, I hope he gets to play in a bowl game. I, I do. I want as much Jaden Daniels in my life as possible. I'm also preparing for the possibility that maybe he's like, you know what? I've done all I can do. Let's give way to Garrett Nussmeyer in the bowl game. If he does that, I'm not going to fault him for it. I'm just just saying, let's let's prepare for this possibility. If this is his last game, let's appreciate it because – even in a year that he's not going to go play for a national championship, it's special. It really, really is, man. It, it really, really is. And this offense doing what it's doing it is uh, just a video game. I'm not. I'm not that good in video games. I don't know who is. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe other people are that good in video games. I am. 
I am definitely not able to do the things that he can do. Florida State's playoff seating should be changed based on the Jordan Travis injury Yarna. Hardest nah. The hardest of nahs. Um, I hate that. I hate that. Mm-mm. Give me the resume. Do not give me the, oh, well, we think that this team is now going to look like, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. 2014 Ohio State is proof that you should not do that. You just shouldn't. You just never know what that backup, or I guess in Ohio State's case, the third string guy, that's what Cardell Jones was because Braxton Miller gets hurt early. JT Barrett gets hurt late. You just never know. Okay. And I'm not saying that Florida State's going to win a national championship. I thought even with Jordan Travis, they were probably going to lose in the playoff semifinal. I, I can't say definitively, though, that you should keep that team out because of their backup quarterback situation. When they were talking on game day about leaving out an undefeated Florida State team, I want to pull my hair out. I think Herb Street is one of the smartest, one of the smartest football minds that we have. I don't think he understands the playoff and how this works. Okay. I just don't. And if you want to say, well, what would Florida State do against an SEC schedule? They're playing two SEC teams this year. Okay. They're playing two SEC teams in non-conference play. And I get it. It's it's a different grind to go through the length of the SEC schedule. And I get all that. And Florida State has had their injuries and they've had to overcome slow starts in these games. If they were a team that was just sitting there playing Michigan's non-conference slate, let's have that conversation. But what do they do to LSU at a neutral site? Are they going to go into the swamp and win that football game too? Because if if that's your argument, and if you're saying that an undefeated potential 13-0 Florida State team who might be beating a top-10 Louisville team, a one-loss Louisville team, if they're able to beat Kentucky, if that is the resume and what it looks like heading into the rankings, the final rankings, Selection Sunday, Florida State is in. Don't waste your breath on that. Not leaving out an undefeated Power 5 team who challenged itself in non-conference play, who played two Power 5 teams in non-conference play. Get out of here. Oh, I hated that. I have not been the biggest Florida State defender in years past. Hashtag do something. Real ones know what I'm talking about. But man, uh, I will defend Florida State till the end of the earth if if that is an actual argument being made on Selection Sunday. That, oh, you know what? They really haven't looked apart. Washington's the one that's been playing with fire all these weeks. Washington's the one that hasn't had a comfortable win in a month and a half. Not Florida State. Ah, I just didn't get that. So, sucks for Jordan Travis. One of my favorite players in college football. That injury was nasty. Don't watch the replay if you haven't. It's not worth. It's not worth it. I, that what is it? The hip drop tackle that that's become the new cause that everybody's fighting against. The Mark Andrews thing that happened on Thursday Night Football. And uh, don't watch it. Um, it's gross. I, I shouldn't even be really talking about it because I'm probably just going to make you want to go and get on the internet and watch it. But uh, that guy has been, he's been nails. He is so tough. He is, in my opinion, so fun to watch. Yeah, I know he makes some mistakes from time to time. He's not a perfect player. I don't know what his NFL future holds, but that guy has turned into one of the most fun players to watch in college football. And that just sucked. Sports are cruel. Sports are really, really cool. Cruel. That felt like, um, one of those, one of those plays where you're just like, man, this uh, it sometimes just doesn't line up, and maybe it will line up for Florida State. Who knows? Like I said, maybe they will be 2014 Ohio State. But if the debate is now, well, you can't keep them in, you can't put them in the playoff as an undefeated team, and you especially can't put them in the playoff now that they have a backup quarterback. Miss me with that. Hate that. Yeah or not, the SEC will spoil the ACC's playoff bid. Speaking of Florida State. 
I don't think so because we're depending on Florida and Kentucky to do that. So, hmm. look, if uh, if this isn't a Jeff Brom coach Louisville team, maybe. But I don't really have a whole lot of confidence in that. I don't. I don't really know that Kentucky's going on the road and beating quality opponents at this at this point. Just don't have a whole lot of faith in that, despite the fact that Mark Stoops has owned this rivalry as of late. But again, we're talking about a new coaching staff, very, very different style of offense that they're playing over there at Louisville. So I don't really feel good about that. And then look, maybe, maybe the Jordan Travis injury is the break that Florida needed to be able to get to bowl eligibility and avoid the five game losing streak in the season. Maybe, maybe. Okay. But I, I don't feel good about that preseason prediction that Florida would beat Florida state in the swamp that they would hand the Knowles their first loss of the season or something like that. I think I say first loss of the season. No, I think I said it would be Florida State's second loss. Yeah, I'm backing off that one. I'm backing off that one. I, I still think this Florida State offense has plenty of playmakers in which, I, look, maybe, maybe, maybe Florida pulls off a miracle and we see an, a very overwhelmed backup quarterback, but um, – do I feel like that is inevitable? No. So I'm going to probably say, nah, the SEC will not spoil the ACC's playoff bid. Last one. Yarna, the loser of Michigan, Ohio State is going to miss the playoff. I'm going to say yeah on that one. I'm going to say yeah just because think about this. I mentioned earlier, we're, we're still waiting for chaos. Chaos at the top has not happened yet. And instead, we're going into this matchup with Michigan-Ohio State in a different place than we were at last year with the playoff. Think about that. Georgia, undefeated. Florida State, undefeated. Washington, undefeated. Oregon, one loss. Texas, one loss. Potentially a win-and-in type scenario. Bama, one loss. Potentially a win-and-in type scenario. These teams are, I mean, Louisville still sitting there with one loss. I don't think the ultimate chaos scenario is going to unfold. But, and what I'm talking about is the SEC getting left out because Texas would block a potential one loss Alabama and a potential one loss Georgia. I don't think that's going to play out. I still don't. But I don't think enough dominoes have fallen for history to repeat itself and have the loser of the Michigan Ohio State game make the playoff. And again, that's kind of a blanket statement. A lot of things can happen with two weekends of football. Um, the Pac-12 could cannibalize itself still. Who knows? That That is still very much on the table. Weird things happen with Oregon and Oregon State. Um, yeah, but I'm going to say I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that is a true win and end game. And yes, I realize that Iowa is still waiting in the Big Ten championship. Um, that That is a win and end game. If I'm saying in the Big Ten championship ball game after Michigan or Ohio State takes a seven to nothing lead. Um, yeah, that's. That's how you know this. That's not really a true test. So, yeah, I don't think the Big Ten has done them any favors, too. That's kind of what I think has hurt them. The, the Big Ten West is the Big Ten West, and Penn State is Penn State. And outside of that, you're kind of looking around going, hmm, it's not really that fourth team in the East because Michigan State is so bad, and Maryland got off to that great start, and then has been one of – Maryland is the Big Ten's version of Kentucky – um, yeah, I just, mm, I, I don't see the winner getting it. And a lot of college football fans on the outside, outside of the, the Midwest are saying, well, that's a good thing because we saw last year what happens when Ohio state and Michigan both get into the college football playoff. So, um, I don't think that will be the case this year. 
can't wait to see the way this unfolds, man. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited for the fact that it feels like everybody, everybody, every conference at the Power 5 level feels like it should have a seat at the playoff table. And I thought we were going to have more years like this, and we haven't. We just haven't. But it is a good thing for the popularity of the sport, which I know not a lot of people care about. I care about that probably more than person listening to this who cares about their specific team. I understand that. But I still do think that is going to make for a really, really, really fun ending that I am looking forward uh, to seeing. Rivalry week. Peter Burns, he's going to join us. We're going to have so much to be able to discuss. A little tweak in the schedule. We are going to record on Tuesday. We're going to have that pod come out on Wednesday morning. So hopefully, as you're driving around doing your your Thanksgiving prep or something like that, you'll have that pod ready to go. We're, we're going to drop that pod on Thanksgiving on Thursday. We always try and get that out a little bit earlier. So we will have full rivalry week breakdowns uh, for the people early in the week. So be on the look for that. If you haven't, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS pod, at Set Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.